Would you stand, please? As Bob comes this morning to read our scripture as we continue our study in the life of John the Baptist. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This is the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with a map, and as I put this map on the screen, I don't want you to stress out if you can't see all the names and the locations, because what I really want you to see on this map are not the names, but the colors. And what these colors represent as John the Baptist was stepping onto the scene to begin his public ministry, and also as Jesus soon after would step onto the scene to begin his public ministry, these colors represent power. More than that, they represent people who claim to be in power. And what the world looked like at this time when, when so many people were clamoring to, to establish themselves as the authority, as the one who should always be listened to, always be trusted, always known to be the one who would deliver God's word or the words of the gods, so to speak, that the people were to be able to, to listen to and to trust and to believe. If we were talking about this map on the level of empire, that high level, all of this color would have to be the same because during this time, Rome believed that she was in charge of everything. Everyone, including the Israelites, the Hebrew people, those in Galilee and Judea, were submitted underneath the heavy, oppressive yoke of the Roman Empire. So, so Caesar reigned over all of these lands. But what the colors represent on this map are those other people who claim to be in power who had inherited what had, had once belonged to Herod the Great, Herod the First. 
and, and his descendants had, had inherited all of his land and his power, but, but not one of them was strong enough or powerful enough or dynamic enough to reign by themselves. And so it was broken up into four different quadrants. And Luke talks about this at the beginning of this chapter, so if we back up just a little bit from what we read, he names all of those people who were, were clamoring to, to sit on the seats of power. All of this happened in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. He was the Caesar. He was in charge of the empire in this moment. But at the national level, level the empire also had its representative, its governor, Pontius Pilate, a name we know all too well from the Gospels, who was reigning in, in, in Galilee and in Judah on behalf of the empire. And then you had all of those Herods who had taken over the power from Herod I. Herod the Tetrarch was in charge of Galilee. His brother Philip was in charge of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was in charge of Abilene. So you had all of these men claiming to be powerful, claiming to be trustworthy, saying, when you're in my region, you do things my way. But then also in Jerusalem, you had not only the imperial power and the national power, but you had the religious power. There was still a functioning temple in Jerusalem. There was still a high priesthood. And Luke begins this chapter by saying, and in this moment, Caiaphas and Annas, they were the high priests in Jerusalem. All of these powerful men were reigning in all of their places, in all of their seats, and, and all of their seats of power. But the word of God did not come to any of them. The reason that, that Luke begins this chapter with all the name-dropping of all these powerful people is because the word of God did not come to Caesar, did not come to any of the Herods, did not even come to the high priests in the temple in Jerusalem. But the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, out in the wilderness. Much like we saw during the stories of Advent a few weeks ago, God just has a way of speaking to people and calling them out in the most unexpected places and in the most unexpected ways. And with all of these people claiming to be God's appointed authority, it was John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who received the word of God, just as the angel Gabriel had told them was going to happen for their son back in the beginning of our Advent stories. And so what we find here in Luke chapter 3 is the ministry of John the Baptist as he began teaching in the wilderness. This was after the word of the Lord came to him to give him the words that he was supposed to speak to the people to prepare the way, not for himself, but for the one who would come after him, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. After God's words began coming to him and before he baptized Jesus, the crowds were gathering all around. And Luke describes this moment in a similar way to what we read in Mark's gospel last week. John went into all the country and around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, John was a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Here's what really was at the core of John's message to the people. 
I am not the Messiah. The Messiah is coming after me. When he comes, he will increase and I will decrease. And when Christ comes, he is coming to teach us everything that is right. And when Christ comes, he's coming to show us everything that is right. And when Christ comes, he's coming to set things right once and for all. So that with all of those voices that are, are all around us all the time, shouting and demanding our attention and demanding our allegiance, Christ alone will be the one to whom we give those things. Our allegiance, our commitment, our lives. And everything that is dark and evil and wrong around us, He will set it right. And all people, all people will see God's salvation. This moment in Luke chapter 3 records one of John's messages that honestly doesn't get talked about quite as much. Usually when we talk about John the Baptist, we talk about him baptizing Jesus. We talk about his disciples, the crowds who were coming out. But Luke alone records this particular message on this particular day and the incredible responses that John received from those who were in the crowd and who were listening. And so from John's message today, I want us to think about his words in terms of what we talked about last week. That John didn't just talk about Jesus. He pointed people to Jesus. It wasn't only that John was speaking about Jesus with the words that he was given, but through his life, through his obedience, and through his ministry— he quite literally was pointing people to Jesus and often saying, there he is, there he goes. And in the same way, our call and commission as Christ's disciples today is to point people to Jesus. And so today I pray we will see that clearly through this text. The first part that I want us to discuss will lead into with two words, verses 7 through 9. Two words that come up again and again in John's ministry and are, are clear here at the beginning of this passage. Judgment and repentance. John comes out to the crowds, people who were following him, who heard him continually preaching this message of repentance and baptism through the forgiveness of sins. And on this particular occasion, Matthew helps us understand that as he looked into the crowds, he wasn't just saying this part at the beginning to everyone in the crowd, but specifically, he was speaking to the religious leaders, the most religious, the most educated. And he begins with words that to us might not sound too offensive, but believe you me, in the ancient world, this was a major slap in the face. As he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? In other words, who told you that some way you believe you're going to escape the wrath that is coming to you for not living in obedience, for not living faithfully, for proclaiming to sit in the seats of righteousness, but leading the people astray for your own selfish gain? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? If you want there to be any chance that you avoid the judgment that is coming produce fruit in keeping with repentance i don't know how many men we have in the room that grew up like i did in the 80s and 90s but if you grew up in the 80s and 90s and you're a guy you most likely love the movie tombstone 
can I get an amen from some guys my age did you love okay early service I I got some amens and some grunts I mean guys were really excited about the movie tombstone I loved that movie still love that movie and when you get into the second half of the movie you really start to hear the same kind of language judgment is coming a reckoning is coming all of those people who think they're winning though they do evil though they do wrong their moment is coming where what's wrong is going to be set right and a reckoning is going to take place and john's message is is similar to that but on a much deeper and more important level while, while the people of israel and judea and galilee had to be so confused much like we probably feel sometimes who should we listen to who should we trust who actually does have our best interests in mind back in those days surely the jewish people the hebrew people had to hope that at least their priesthood could be trusted at least those who were 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 leading in their religious efforts those men who had been given been given the responsibility to facilitate worship and to impart truth and to teach them what was right instead of what was wrong Surely the people had to have had some hope that they would not lead them astray. And yet John's message is clear and Jesus' message is going to be clear. So many of those religious leaders were not living obediently and faithfully to the calling they'd been given. They did not have the people's best interests and their spiritual lives in mind. And so a a reckoning was coming, a judgment was coming. And I love the way that John says the acts is already at the root of the trees i've shared with you before this just came out a few months ago it's called the first nations version of the new testament it's an indigenous translation of the new testament that was put together by native american church planters and scholars and pastors in the united states and in canada these are our people who have worked among native american populations for years on reservations and in other places and, and they put together this translation of the Bible using teaching tools that they've used among Native American populations to help them understand the teachings of Scripture and the New Testament in their language and with, with images that they understand. And I love the way that, that this First Nations version translates this text. For example, where verse 9 says, the axe is already at the root of the trees, the First Nations version says, the tomahawk is already at the root of the trees. But these verses 7 and 8, the interpretation that the indigenous translation gives, I think, is one of the best definitions I've ever seen of the word repentance. This is from the, the First Nations version. Instead of brood of vipers, it begins, You nest of poisonous snakes, who warned you to run and hide from the coming storm? And here is that definition of repentance. Prove to others by the way you live that you have returned to the good road. That repentance is more than just a confession of sins, though that's part of it. And it's more than just a a confession of belief that we've got our, our beliefs and our understanding in the right order, though that also is part of it. Repentance is a physical act of turning away from the evil direction we've been going the sinful road that we've been on and turning literally to the good road to the right path to the everlasting way where we are following the lord faithfully repentance is something that is demonstrated not just with words and attitudes but with actions 
and in such a way that publicly it is obvious that that change that transformation has come to our heart and life and others can see it because through repentance we are no longer the same person the same people that we used to be john says to the religious leaders you brood of vipers if you really want to avoid the judgment that's coming your way the wrath the storm that is coming upon you then demonstrate with your lives the fruit that that repentance has taken place and that you are no longer just living for yourself but you are living for god who has called you and set you apart and i love the way john continues he he says and just in case you're putting all of your trust in your birthright or in your bloodline or in your family name or in the the privilege you've inherited or in the merit that somehow you think you've earned god's favor through something you've done he says do not begin to say to yourselves we have abraham as our father aren't we great aren't we so proud of who we are we have abraham's name we are better than everybody else just because of the name we've been given john says i tell you the truth out of these stones god can raise up children for abraham god can evoke worship from anything he's created he doesn't have to have it from you he can use anything in all of creation to to call upon his name and give him the worship that he deserves so don't claim your name god can raise up children for abraham from anywhere the axe is already at the root of the trees and those trees that are going to get cut down and thrown into the fire are those trees that do not produce any fruit in keeping with repentance it's not your bloodline that casts you into the fire it's not your religious membership that casts you into the fire it's the reality that is evident by the lack of fruit in your life that that transformation has not happened in your life that you have heard the message of god's truth but you have rejected it and because you've rejected it because you're putting your faith your hope and trust in other things when the judgment comes the wrath comes the storm comes you will not be able to stand because only upon the foundation of god's truth are we able to stand in the face of judgment john is preparing the way for the messiah to be sure but at this point before christ has begun his ministry John's also pointing them back to the consistent truths God had been telling his people all along. Go back to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Time and again, God says to them, I don't want your empty words, and I don't just want you to be more religious. I want your hearts, I want your obedience, and I want your life. I want you to be my people and I am your God, and I want you to stand out among the nations because the fruit of you being my people is evident by who you are in the way that you live. Judgment and repentance. How do we avoid this judgment? Well, it's not through becoming more religious. It's through repentance, and repentance that produces fruit. And two more words to help guide us through the second part of the text are the words righteousness and justice and out of a, a life of, of repentance and obedience walking with god certainly righteousness and justice will flow now you may be someone who says well i'm kind of getting tired of hearing this word justice all the time i hear it all the time and it, it it's overdone it's overspoken 
But the word righteousness, especially in a, a church setting, it hits us a little softer, right? We like that word. Righteousness is good. Well, actually, in, in, in the Greek New Testament, it's the same word. It's only based on context do we know, should we translate it righteousness and justice? And the words go together because they, they flow together in the same stream. If we truly have Christ's righteousness in us and flowing out of us, then we will care deeply about justice because is not justice setting that which is wrong right? Which is what Christ has done for us. Which is why Christ has brought us from, from death to life, from our, our, our dead state in our sin to, to fullness of life that only he can give. He's the one that has set everything right by the cross and his resurrection. And so in the same way, if we have christ's righteousness in us when we see that which is wrong when we see that which is unjust it ought to bother us deeply because we know that it bothers him and we know that his salvation has come to set all that is wrong right this is an unbelievable thing that happens as john is speaking to the crowds confronting them in some ways you might even say insulting them the crowds respond to him in a way that is every preacher's dream. They say, John, what should we do? It, this is amazing to me. I mean, he has just stepped on everybody's toes in the crowd, but he doesn't get any angry emails, as far as we know. He doesn't have anybody leave the, the setting or, or say ugly things to him. Instead, the people are moved, they're convicted, and they say, what should we do? To the crowds, John says, well, the one who has two tunics, two shirts, must give to others, must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. What, what should we do in response to this, this conviction that we are not on the good road, we're on the bad road? Well, through, through the fruit of repentance, you ought to be generous. And if you're a person who has more than others, then share. And if you're a person who is more fortunate, then share with the less fortunate. Share with those who are more vulnerable than you are. And then the next group, verse 12, is a group of tax collectors. And this is really amazing. That a group of tax collectors would also feel this conviction, be moved by John's message through the Spirit of God, and say, what should we do? You don't have to look far into the ancient world to find examples of tax collectors who were evil who had the reputation for for collecting more than they should for exploiting people for being dishonest for being willing to sell their countrymen and even their own families down the line in order to make more profit in fact there are some examples that even tell of tax collectors who imprisoned the loved ones of people who owed them money and had them tortured until their debtors paid them back and yet even the tax collectors on this occasion say, what should we do in response to what we've heard? And not only that, but Luke even says some of them heard the message of repentance and they wanted to get in the water with John and experience this baptism of repentance to turn away from the ways they'd been living. John says to them, do not collect any more than what you have been authorized. Live in honesty and with respect towards others. And do your job right and correct. The third group who asks, what should we do, is a group of Roman soldiers. I mean, if you're a Roman soldier in the first century, you've got it made. You can do whatever you want 
to whomever you want, whenever you want. And yet even a group of Roman soldiers ask John, well, what should we do? And you get the impression from his response just how many of these soldiers had been living towards their neighbors. John responded, don't take money from anyone by force or by false accusation. Instead, be satisfied with your wages. What should we do? We undergo this baptism of repentance. What does the fruit of repentance look like in our lives? John essentially says, prove to others by the way that you live that you're returning to the good road. Prove to others through your actions that now what you say you believe and who you say you want to be before God is true. Prove it by what you do. I love this quote from St. Francis. He said, it's no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is also our preaching. We can have all the right words, but our actions, our lives demonstrate what we really believe in our hearts and who we truly are. The fruit of repentance is more than just a confession of sins and belief, though those are an essential part of it. The fruit of repentance is also an act of turning from disobedience to obedience. And thus it is fruit that can be seen by others because it is fruit that is being produced in our lives. Yeah, we had a great discussion about this in our Wednesday night Bible study this Wednesday, which I'll just use this as a moment for free advertisement. We are meeting again on Wednesday nights. If you're not a part of one of our other Bible studies because our preschoolers, children, students, we're all meeting together again, come to the fellowship hall and join us. We have a great time of Bible study and prayer. And we were talking about what, what is this repentance that John is asking for here? Because yes, he's proclaiming the Messiah is coming. He's preparing the way. But he also has to be referring to something that they've known in the past. And what he's referring to from the past is what we've already said. That God has been consistent about this all along. He told them these same things in the Torah, in the law, in, in books like Deuteronomy. He told his people these same things over and over again through the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and others. He told them this time and time again. I don't just want your lip service and I don't just want your attendance. I want your hearts. I want your lives. And I want to see that you are my people demonstrated in the way you relate to the world around you and the neighbors I've surrounded you with. Can I just tell you an area where I feel like we've gotten this pretty right as evangelicals and Baptists? We've gotten this pretty right with regard to the preborn, the unborn, as many call them. This Sunday in, in many churches, they'll be celebrating Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, there was some question about whether it was this Sunday or next Sunday. We didn't forget, okay? We're observing it next Sunday. And, and we will have our, our representative from uh, Hope Pregnancy Center here to share with us about the ministry and the partnership that we have here. It, it's been amazing to watch for the last several decades that evangelical Christians and Baptists, more than anyone else I can think of in our culture, have been leading the way, defending the life of a child in the womb, and saying that, that we believe as people of, of Scripture and people of faith that this is an issue upon which we should take a firm stand and we should continue to speak. We've done a, a great job of this, and it has made an impact. And many of you in this room, you have been a part of that. And there's obviously more work to be done. But now that I've told you the good side, let me, let me tell you a little bit of the other side as a challenge. 
we have a reputation for being the most ardent defenders of life in the womb but we don't always have the best reputation about how we then deal with that life once a child has been born especially if we see that person as someone who might want to take from us or might inconvenience us or stands on the opposite side of some issue that's really really important to us we have not always have and don't currently have the best reputation when it comes to those things but what might it look like for us to be people who demonstrate through the fruit of our repentance and the fruit of the salvation that we've experienced in Christ and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us producing fruit in us as only he can that, that we are people of righteousness we are people who care about justice and in a very countercultural way we can live as people who are generous and not greedy and not dishonest and not tight-fisted and in a very countercultural way we can say we do not treat people as expendable just because we want what we want and in these challenging and unprecedented times is anybody else tired of that word unprecedented i'm tired of it too in these challenging and unprecedented times like the ones in which we're living when no one when no one is absolutely right about everything they think we can be people who in a very countercultural way show grace and don't allow our valuable relationships with others to be damaged or even destroyed over issues where everyone is struggling listen I, i'm i'm just going to be extra honest with you it breaks my heart the, the number of conversations I've had with people where in the last two years with all this mess of the pandemic and everything else they have lost valuable relationships that they had with people before all of this has started over issues that someday we're going to look back on and we're going to say everybody was struggling none of us got it perfectly right and we may not even ever fully understand all that we've been dealing with it breaks my heart to hear that families are pushing each other out that people that used to be welcome in someone's space are now no longer welcome and that some are, are intentionally saying i want nothing to do with you anymore over these things we as believers have the opportunity to demonstrate the fruit of repentance in such a way that says we won't live like that and if we've been living like that or even if someone has been treating us that way because we have received so much grace from god we are going to be people who demonstrate that grace to others and we're going to let it be seen through our lives that the transformation that christ brings to our hearts is not just for us but it's a part of a much bigger story that makes an impact on the lives of those who are around us i felt led as we as i was reading this and looking back to that prophecy from malachi which we read earlier in the service led to this passage again in hebrews chapter 2 which uses very similar language but i think gives us such a great reminder of as we live in a time where there are so many things clamoring for our attention and allegiance where do we know that we're putting our feet on solid ground here's what the writer of hebrews said we must pay the most careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away 
What, what is it that we've heard? Well, the writer continues. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him, who heard Jesus. And God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What is the writer of Hebrews saying through the Holy Spirit here? It's very simple. They lived in a noisy world too. They lived in a time when it was very hard at times to know who to trust, who to listen to, and how to live. And the writer of Hebrews is doing here exactly what John the Baptist did through his ministry, pointing us back to Jesus. If you wonder, where can I put my feet back on solid ground? How can I know, how can I be sure that I'm not drifting away? That all of those things that are pulling at me all of the time, that, that they will not be successful in dragging me away and pulling me down that rabbit hole in a way that I'll never recover again. The writer of Hebrews says, John said as, as he prepared the way for the Messiah. Isaiah prophesied about it. Micah prophesied about it. Malachi prophesied about it. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Pay the most careful attention to what you've heard. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very words of God that he has given to us. And when we stand upon his words, and when all of our allegiance and our commitment is given to him, he will not lead us astray. And we will not go wrong. Are you concerned about drifting away? Me too. Pay careful attention to what you've heard. And trust and believe that Christ will never lead us astray. This part of Luke chapter 3 concludes. The people, I, I sure wish this was a description of us all the time. The people were waiting expectantly. And, and they were waiting expectantly for the Messiah to come. They were wondering in their hearts, is John that guy? Is John him? But John answered them all in words that are, are becoming very familiar to us as a part of this study. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is already in his hand. To clear his threshing floor. To clear out all of those peddlers of false religion. All those who would lead the people astray. All those who were claiming to do good, but instead were doing evil. He will clear his th threshing floor. He will gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people, and he kept proclaiming to them the good news. That Jesus is coming that Jesus is going to set things right. That, that he can be trusted and he is the firm foundation, the living hope upon which we build our lives. You remember back in that discussion that John was having with the crowds? The crowds responded. The tax collectors responded. The Roman soldiers responded. Did you notice he was conspicuously absent? It was the religious leaders. There's never a point where Luke says, the most religious, the most educated, that they said to John, what should we do? 
By all appearances, from what we can tell in Scripture, their hearts were still hardened to the good news they needed to hear. And just as they rejected John's message, read on in the New Testament, most of them rejected Jesus himself too. May that not be true of us today. May we be those whose hearts are open. May we be those who say, Jesus Christ is our living hope. And with all of the darkness and evil around us, we will point others to him. May we be people, just as Jesus described, who set our lamp out in the middle of the room, who don't cover it up with a bowl so that it gives light to the entire house, and that people will see that Jesus Christ is the answer. And only the true light of Christ can truly overcome the darkness around us. Can I tell you just before we close here, by way of report, how well some of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are modeling this for us? I want to tell you just for a moment about what's been happening with our church partners in Venezuela. As 2021 came to a close, we got some amazing final reports of the work that's being done in that country. As you know, in Venezuela, a country that is in much disarray, there are many people who are suffering, and there are many people who are cut off from the most basic resources. Well, our ministry in Venezuela is partnering with hundreds of churches literally all over the country, and for the last year, whether you knew this or not, our church has been able to donate literally millions of dollars worth of medicine and resources that God has very miraculously gotten through roadblocks and barriers all over the country into the hands of our church partners who have then been able to distribute these things to people all over the country to demonstrate the, the fruit of their repentance in, in a very compassionate, loving, and kind way towards their neighbors. Our church partners have been distributing medicine and resources in churches, in homes, in schools, in police stations, in hospitals, on street corners, in retirement homes, and even in government offices. They opened six different clinics all over the country. And through the process of distributing the medicine and the resources, they've used it as an opportunity not just to try to practice social improvement, but to point everyone who comes to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you a number here and I don't want you to think that I misspoke because I'm not going to misspeak, okay? This is the number. Through all the reports that were sent to Alan and Gowdy Carlton, our, our church members who helped lead in this ministry, through all the reports we received from our Venezuelan partners, more than 18,000 people gave their life to Christ this year through those ministries. 18,000. And I will tell you, this is a consistent thing in places where, where circumstances are the worst. The gospel just seems to thrive. And where people are faithful and obedient and living out the fruit of their obedience and repent, repentance with their lives, the gospel is proclaimed and people respond. And we're praying for even greater things to happen, even in the midst of those terrible circumstances in Venezuela in the next year. And they're modeling for us Again, what I pray will be our response today, that we will point other people to Jesus, just as John did. And we will say with all the other voices around us, he alone can be trusted above all.
and he is worthy of our worship our praise and in him we find our hope would you bow your heads with me and and pray with me and i simply want to ask as we have our time of invitation would you just wherever you are even if you're one who's watching online would you just place yourself in a posture where your heart is open And today, would you trust Jesus at the deepest level of your soul? I want to point you to Jesus for that, the deepest level of your inmost being. If that is a part of your life that right now feels filled with darkness, empty and lost, today would you be willing to say to Jesus, yes, I believe in you, I trust you. Jesus, I want to give you my whole life to that deepest level. And would you trust him today with your soul, with who you are? If you are a follower of Jesus, would you just simply then say to him today, Lord Jesus, I trust you for my very next breath. I trust you with my entire life. I trust you with my family. I trust you with the direction that you would lead me. I trust you to always keep me on the good road. If you are a follower of Jesus, would you, would you say that to him today with that, that deep level of trust? And then, and then let that level of trust flow out into commitment, a fruit of your repentance, to say to him, my life is yours for your glory and not my own do I live. I pray that each and every one of us today would be fertile soil for the good news of the gospel, even the hard teachings that lead us to repentance and obedience. God, we give you this time. We ask that you would speak to every single heart, every person that's here. And Lord, if there's anyone who needs to come to you and, and experience the salvation of their soul at that deep level, Lord, would you draw them to you? And would you speak to every one of our hearts today about how we are to live in faithfulness and obedience to you? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.